So, continuing on the thread of the last day's teachings, I'd like to, to offer some reflections on our relationship with time, nature of time, empty nature of time, and specifically not for the kind of philosophizing of it, but for us to see what is our relationship with time and what's the effect of our relationship with time, ways in which our relationship to time can, uh, can conduce to friction or to freeness, to entanglement or to liberation. And maybe most importantly, in, in just first of all, would be to m- distinguish clearly between uh, time as I want to speak about it and time as we habitually measure it right, in terms of clocks, minutes, hours, days, weeks. Minutes and hours and days and weeks don't measure time. They measure gradations of human agreement. Right. Time is just like space. We were exploring space yesterday. The space is ineffable, edgeless, limitless. There's no edges to space. So centimeters and kilometers and uh, other things don't measure space. They just measure convenient human gradations that allow us to, you know, make buildings and. sell land and know how much you you know fill things up and stuff like that (laughs) very useful but that's not space and yet we settle for a measured relationship to something which is fundamentally immeasurable and that's one of the ways it gets reduced for us to something that seems to be known familiar something that becomes one of those primary reference points we've spoken about, right? Primary reference points, self and world, or that which is you know, not self. Self, world, time, space. And so in the same way, minutes and hours don't measure time, they measure agreement, right? Very helpfully so, right? so that we can be here at 5.30. 5.30 isn't really a measure of time, it's a measure of clocks. Our clock reflects emptiness. Have you noticed? One of the staff <laughs> came to me a couple of weeks ago and said, somebody's taken the clock. <laughs> he said, and it, it was so weird, while I was meditating, someone must have come in and taken the clock. I was sitting there, and it's quite high up. They must have used a ladder. And I didn't hear a thing. So were they very quiet? Was I deep in meditation? Actually, there was a power cut. So you see, it's just a projection, our clock. There's no clock. There's no time. Just projection. We were very happy when we found that clock. Oh. Reminder all the time. We think, oh, yeah, we're looking at the time. No, it's just a projection. 
Very nice. So we can look in all kinds of ways about how we measure time and how the effect of our measuring of time can, as I say, conduce to friction or to freeness. Often the way we measure time conduces to feeling pressured by time, bound by time, and measuring our life in terms of time. So we might usefully reflect, well, what's my relationship to time? And it seems, whatever our relationship to time is, it's so, it's so integrated in our sense of how life is, how time passes, that it doesn't really seem like my relationship to time. It seems like the way time is. But of course, you know, I mean, even culturally, there's a lot of different ways to relate to time. We've probably grown up with the sort of probably the dominant sense of time, linear time. Right? Certainly dominant in most of Europe, at least in northern Europe, and the places that the Europeans then uh, invaded and uh, destroyed and dominated. You know, North America and Australia, etc. Those places that we think of with this broad term as Western. Now, and the <coughs> that sense of linear time, right? time is passing, we talk about time's arrow, right? And then there's a sort of commodified relationship to time. Time is money. And we measure them. how much do you charge per hour, for example. And there's a sense of then, because of the linearity of time, time's constantly vanishing into the past in the perception, right? And then we have the concerns about losing time, wasting time. Right? Something that becomes quite a preoccupation. And the more, we, um, the more we fixate on the linearity of time, the more we fixate on the feeling of time is passing and getting lost, both in terms of vanishing into the past and the concern about the way this one over time is hurtling towards its demise, right? which is the case. We're hurtling towards our demise, but over how much time? We don't know. Right? We don't know. Although, ironically, we always feel like we have plenty of time. There's no evidence that we have plenty of time. You seem to feel you have plenty of time whether you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, <coughs> 80s. No. At some point, you definitely don't have plenty of time right? in, in the measuring. And yet the tendency, and even however young we are, if we don't know how much time. Maybe we're, you know, we, everyone here is probably at least, or most of us are at least a third of the way. Most of us, at least halfway, even the optimistic view. Some of some of us, we're getting to the, uh, some of us, three quarters, you know. You know, even the optimistic view. So, it's, it's very, for most of us, I would imagine, that sense of the linearity of time is so built in that it just seems like that's how time works in terms of time's arrow. But it's very interesting, if one reads about the different cultural relationships to time, that's not a universal sense. The linearity of time just going from past to present. I was reading something a while ago about the Madagascan culture, 
where time, people experience time, think of time as appearing from behind them and arriving into the back of their head. Time comes from the back and arrives like that and then opens up, going forward. Quite interesting. Whereas most of us, following what we call linear time, it's more like oh, the future's in front of us and the past is behind us. That's a totally arbitrary relationship to time. That's not how time is. If it was, I would look. I could see yesterday <laughs> back there. I mean, clearly not. But we we see philosophically. If we deconstruct it, we know. Okay, your time isn't actually behind me. But the feeling of it is, and the language reinforces that. Oh, that's behind you now. Well, hmm. looks in, and even within this, what we call a kind of European or Western view of time, you know, there's a lot of differences. Seven o'clock. Say seven o'clock to. If I say seven o'clock to Dutch friends, here. Seven o'clock means any time leading up to seven o'clock. If I say come at seven o'clock, they'll come any time from quarter two to seven o'clock. Right? They definitely won't come after seven o'clock. Seven o'clock. Come at seven o'clock means better be there by seven o'clock at the latest. And then French friends, you say seven o'clock. Sort of 7.30. <laughs> you go further down in Europe, 7 o'clock means any time in the evening. <laughs> and then parts of the Mediterranean basin and the Middle East and looks at the cultural relationship to time. It's much more defined, rather than in terms of linearity and commodification, it's much more, uh, the, the sense or the way that time is measured is much more in terms of relationship and what's happening. So the sense, where we have the time of being efficiency is a big part of measuring linear time. Right? How do you make good use of time? Be efficient. Right? What did I get done you know, in this much time? The measuring of time, other places, in the sense of relationship. So if I want to make good use of time, well, if I'm speaking with someone and we're eating together and we're also discussing something that might become mutually beneficial, maybe some business deal or something, that's good use of time. How long that takes is kind of is much less relevant. We're making good use of time. We, we, you know, we're doing things. We, we're talking, we're eating, we're organizing things. A good time. How long it takes, whether it takes one hour or two hours, not so important. Whereas if we might arrange to meet someone for lunch, you know, especially if there's some kind of, you know, doing that on a schedule. So one can arrange things through the view of the linearity of time or through the relational sense of, of time. Who's, in, you know, um, who's with me? More important than how is time passing? In the further you go further east, and there's very much the cyclical sense of time is cyclical. Time just goes round and round and round. Plenty of evidence for that. Sun just goes round and round. Day turns to night. Seasons go from one to the other. Lifetimes operate. Oh, there'll be another one along soon. You know, I'm living in India for years. Plenty of times I heard that kind of expression expressed. Well, you know. 
Maybe not, maybe not this time. Next time. <laughs> the sense of measuring time, very, still time, still there as a construct, is very, very different than a kind of one-way arrow that uh, is the more European mindset to do with time. So here we, Europe, you know, GMT, you know what is GMT? Greatly managed time. <laughs> and then in India, they have IST, Indian stretchable time. <laughs> and, you know, this sense of cycle. So time is always, it's always, it's, there's always plenty more of it. There's a saying in it, when, when God made time, he made plenty of it. <laughs> <laughs> there's always, it's always more. There's always more coming. Always more, and it's not related to how how far along this life I am. is a very small detail compared to how much time there is. The whole universe is seen as cyclical. I remember waiting at a bus stand in South India. No timetables in the bus stand. We just would I want the bus to Madurai? Yes. I said, well, when they say coming. <laughs> okay, but you know. Linear minor, but when's it coming? They look at, what do you mean? Where, where is it? It's coming. That's really, that's all you need to know. Right? It's coming. And if, if it's just left, well, another one is coming. Definitely. 13 hours. I sat there. And, and it came. And the guy next to me, having seen me every you know, hour or so, I'd get up. I'd, are you sure? It's coming. Yes. What's the matter with you? It's coming. That's really all you need to know. You wait. Right, time is rolling on, rolling on. Sooner or later, bus just appears. You know? So when the finally come, the guy looked at me as if to say, "All that fuss you made. <laughs> All you needed to do was just believe me from the start." I said it was coming. Sure enough, here it is. So interesting, we just, you know, you'd see these different cultural relationships to time, but we might just reflect on, oh, our sense of time is a conditioned sense of time, not a true sense of time. It's conditioned by our you know, cultural sense, conditioned by, uh, you know, family input. How, how your family relates to time has a big conditioning input. Not often we grow up with the r rush in the morning. Come on, come on, come on. You know, you're going to be late to school or whatever it is. And uh, you know, they're kind of reinforcing, it's already quarter two, or, or whatever. I was very, I was very uh, clear with my children it just seemed so important to me to start the day not in a rush. And just, you know, waking up in the morning in time that we could, like, just start the day a little bit slowly. I'd anyway be up, so I'd usually be sitting when they got up. And then when they were very young, they'd come, and they'd come and find me, and they'd come and sit in my lap while I was sitting. Not for long, a couple of minutes. But they knew if I'm sitting, I'm not responsive. So they sit, and they come, and they'd have a little shrine, a little candle, they come sit. Narayan particularly come sit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then after a couple of minutes, I had enough. 
and then just making time to uh, whatever breakfast, etc. But to have a, it's a very different conditioning for our nervous system, even right, to begin the day slowly. That's why meditation is so good as a as a first thing to do or to do in the early morning, right? To actually let your your, your mind, but even more essentially, it's like to let your alert nervous system dis, uh, discover and trust and rest into a sense of slowness. That, so if these other are kind of con, uh, cultural relationship to time, linear or relational or cyclical, the meditator's relationship to time is has a, mostly to, to do with sense of speed, right? and an, particularly an inner speed. And the sp- because the speed that time passes is totally... I mean, clocks are regular, but time is not at all regular. Right? Time is completely subjective. And time affects... Time depends... Our sense of how of the speed that time is passing mostly depends on the speed at which our nervous system and mind are operating. Time is, uh, is malleable. Time changes, time forms, time metamorphosizes in accordance with our relationship to it. Desire affects time. When you really when you really want something to happen, it, it happens at a different speed. Resistance affects time. <coughs> Absorption affects time. And most of all, presence affects time. You have that sense, desire, of as if we're reaching across time to something. We say, oh, it's there, it's there. And then desire is the attempt to, to close the time gap, to get from where I am, called not good enough, to this time when it will be good enough, when I'll have what I want. Resistance affects time. You see that just in meditation, sitting. And discomfort arises, resistance arises, and the clock seems to slow down in direct proportion <laughs> to the resistance. The clock doesn't change, but time changes. Resistance you know, can greatly affect time. We sit there, we sit there, we sit there, we sit there. For an hour, we sit there at least. For an hour and a half, we sit there, definitely. And then we open our eyes. And ten minutes has gone past only. We find that the more we slow down, and this is kind of counterintuitive to the, the conditioned relationship to time, we find that the more we slow down, the more time we have. I, I often give the example of people of making tea. The habit is to move fast. When you move fast, when you're operating fast, when mind is, is whirring fast, when the nervous system is, is uh, stimulated fast, one feels like, one feels that time is scarce. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. And what do you do when you don't have enough time? You rush. 
And what happens when you rush? You increase the feeling of not having enough time. You can really see that when you make tea, you, you try to make tea fast. You can't, it takes the time that it takes, right? The kettle takes the time that it takes to boil. Right? And then it takes the time that it takes to pour it into the mug. You try to pour it very fast into the mug, no, no good. It takes the time that it takes, but it doesn't stop us from trying to make tea fast. We get very purposeful. We feel very we feel busy and important when we don't have much time. We boast to each other in the disguise of complaint. We say, oh, I don't have, any, don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time. Oh, I don't have much time now. Right? We say it as if we wish we had more time, but actually we say, oh, I'm so, I'm so very busy and important that I really don't have much time. My time is precious. My time is full, etc. I have a friend, we, we remind each other of that when one of us talks about time, the other says to us, I know, you're very busy and important. <laughs> Busting each other. You make tea, same cup of tea, which takes the same amount of clock minutes. You slow down. Oh, time opens up. When one slows down internally, time opens up. Those clock minutes have a completely different feel to them. Slow, mind slows down, nervous system settles down, body relaxes, kettle makes sounds. We might not even say that time passes. Just sounds happen, breath happens, nervous system happens, life's here. Oh. And then boiling happens. Oh, boiling happens, then pouring happens. So if it's true that when we slow down, time opens up, well, then when we act, presence is timeless. The more present we are, the more time opens up. You're completely present, it's timeless. It's perfectly capable of responding to clocks, right? You can get be here for five thirty, but without really moving through time. To the to the linearly conditioned mind, it of course we move through time. But actually, if we really look to our direct experience, if we put aside our ideas of and we just attune to what's here we find that presence is timeless. Of course, every, we have what we call the three fields of time, past, present, and future. We tend to, in the meditative relationship to time, tends to be a bit down on the future and a bit down on the past, and a little bit too up on the present. Right? We see the value of presence of actually coming into the immediacy of experience, the here-ness of experience, the intimacy with experience, a presence in which time can open up. But the tendency, because, we get, because we're so conditioned by time, the tendency is, okay, we'll do away with the future and the past, but we end up, if we're not careful, reifying the present. The present moment, we say, as if it's findable. 
future isn't findable, past isn't findable, but present, we think, should be findable. Yeah, it's got something to do with the breath, I think. <coughs> the present moment is just as empty as the future and the past. Try and find the present. As soon as you point, you say, oh, oh now, here, this, this, this. But as soon as you say this, and you're pointing to it, you, it's, it's already, it's, it's gone. Hey, thank you. So what might it be to be present without actually any sense of landing in the present, of, uh, of fixing the present, of in any way being able to uh, uh, control or understand or define the present moment? Then we might know a presence that's really expansive, inclusive, timeless. And timeless here means unconcerned with time, unconcerned with past or present or future. Perfectly able to recognize that which appears in experience which we call memory, that which we call the past, perfectly uh, <coughs> capable of planning and, uh, and responding to the agreements that we call the future, perfectly uh, capable of attending to what's happening now, but without uh, locking it, binding it, limiting it to the world of time. So we might, we might, the encouragement for us is to, is to investigate our relationship to time. Like I say, the way the resistance changes the sense of time in a meditation se uh, session. The way, you know, what's been your relationship to time over these 14 days? Right? There's been no time in these 14 days. Right? There's just been clocks going round and dates clicking over in the, in the mind, and who knows what kind of relationship. Right? What, does four, what does 14 days of retreat mean on day three, or day six, or day nine, or day whatever this is? Right? Sometimes 14 days is a very long time. Another moment, another moment's 14 days is a very short time. And some days, 14 days is too much time. And in another moment, oh, only 14 days, not enough time. So how, how long is 14 days? <laughs> it depends on the perception, depends on the relationship. Another way our relationship to time is conditioned is very much in terms of somehow we know that it's a, that, you know, especially in the linear sense, but we, the sense of it being a one-way street towards what? Towards death. But we don't really know what that means. Actually, towards the really greatest mystery of life that nobody's ever been able to tell us anything about. Right. Wow. Plenty of ideas, plenty of beliefs. Right. But the... Time's arrow just stops one day. It's one belief. 
or that time's arrow fires us up into the sky forever. That's another belief. Or that time's arrow condemns us to fiery eternity in hell, eventually. Or that time just keeps rolling around, rolling around, rolling around, rolling around, like a great cosmic hamster wheel. But, you know, just con conditioned relationships to time. And sometimes we're struck by the mysterious relationship to time, the mysterious relationship to space also, mysterious relationship to, in terms of death when somebody we care about dies. And the sense of their, their goneness is very mysterious. Process of grief and missing, etc. But when when we look when we meet that process through the conditioning of time, we say, "Oh, they're gone. They're absent. I miss them." And the missing implies an absence in, in space and an absence in time. Gone forever. The, the the time I spent with them is is gone. It's in the past. It's behind me in our linear sense. But actually, if we put, attend to the experience when we miss somebody, when we feel the love for somebody, the grief for somebody, the care for somebody, the memories of somebody, the feel of somebody that we've cared for and spent time with, if we don't reinforce the, the sense, the habitual sense of time, we find, oh, the missing them is them being here. The, the missing them is their presence. Right? Presence in our experience. That's the same as when they were alive. Right? We see the form, but where we actually meet them is here in our experience. And sometimes, for people, that sense of missing somebody in death can open up a, 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 a kind of vast sense that is simultaneously an immediate sense that all of what we call time is here. All moments are here. All that's past is here. And we can point to that in ways. We can point to that that you know the original atoms of the the, the beginnings of the universe are the atoms in our our bodies, etc. But rather than trying to draw parallels or give examples or sort of prove an, a, a fundamentally uh, unprovable, ungraspable content, uh, concept, we might find in those moments of accessing a, f a sense of future or a sense of past or a sense of present that time is vast and inclusive. And presence is timeless. And if it's timeless, it's also beginningless and endless, deathless. Presence is deathless. When Ramana Maharishi was uh, dying in the last days of his life, his devotees were weeping outside. He said, what's that noise? They said, oh, it's People are upset that you're dying. He said, where do they think I could go? Where do they think I could go? 
body's going, mind is going. But if we, if the, to the extent to which our orientation is the immediacy of this, this fundamental luminosity of knowing, this being here, this is deathless. In the Eastern circular conception of time, the sense of rebirth, right, is how we make, how we make sense of that circular nature. And the sense of linearity of time makes sense of that linear nature with a, a final destination called rotting in the earth or going to heaven, depending on you know, whichever pleases you or comforts you or conditions you. And because we, we, we're living in a, in a culture that's conditioned by linear time, we don't tend to speak often in a Buddhist context here. I certainly don't speak much about uh, rebirth. Right? It, it's a kind of awkward fit. For some, it seems to really make sense. and We might reject our linear model of uh, going through life till death and, inf- and take on another one called uh, many births, etc., but for many people, it's an awkward fit because of our conditioning of linear time. But then we, we might love these practices, we love these teachings, we see, oh, the Buddha taught this stuff about mind. It's so directly mappable onto my experience. But hey, I don't really have much of a relationship to this idea of rebirth. But if I look at the texts, the Buddha clearly seems to include the sense of rebirth. Right? So. I was once at a, a teacher conference a few years ago where one of the themes was about rebirth. And one of the senior teachers wanted to have a conversation. He said, look, you know, there's different ways of teaching about rebirth. Right? Often, the, the, the Western fudge that we do, the way we fudge it in, uh, in, the, in teaching the Dharma in, in Europe uh, or elsewhere, is we say, oh, well, look, mind's taking birth in every moment. There's birth. You know, then one can have a psychological sense of rebirth, right? And constantly, so the sense of self takes birth in identifying with a thought, and, uh, and then dies away in a different sense of self. Uh, sense of self in terms of different roles, sense of self in terms of different states. One minute I say, I am angry, and the angry Martin takes birth, and I live that out, and then it, the anger dies away, and the sense of self dies away with it. And then I say, oh, I'm happy, and a different sense of self is born. So that's the, the Western fudge, right? The way of fudging the teachings of rebirth. And the Asian says rebirth, in the Asian traditions, clearly is pointing to a cycle of lives rolling on through endless time. So the, in this teacher conference, the, the question was, how do you teach to the various teachers? How do you teach rebirth? Or do you, do you teach rebirth? Do you just not address it? Or do you teach it as a psychological process like this? Or do you teach it or conceive of it as a kind of cosmological process rolling on lifetime after lifetime? And I, I think I s- like what I like is Buddha's response when you get into meta- metaphysics. Not one. Not the other, not both, and not neither. 
But here we are. We're concerned with this mystery of being alive. And the more we investigate this being alive, the more present we are in it, the more experience opens up. The more space opens up, like we said yesterday, the more the sense of time opens up. The more we find a relationship to time that's, that's mystical, that's all-inclusive. A sense of time that's very immediate and yet into which all of what we call past, present and future can, can kind of collapse, both collapse and resolve. So my contribution to this meeting was, look, we, as practitioners, we know that uh, the deeper you go into experience, the more deeply you go into consciousness, the more we know that an very all kinds of non-ordinary sense of time and space can open up. And given that we have this, we can know and taste the all-inclusive immediacy of time, future, past, present. Isn't it a little clumsy to try to fix the sense of, of rebirth either to a psychological process or to a multi-life process one after the other? We think of rebirth in terms of our linear mindset. One after the other after the other. My sense of rebirth is not reduced to a psychological process, nor, um, uh, nor uh, established on an ongoing process. It's more the sense that, in a way that we can't easily make sense of, all lives, all experiences are simultaneous. All the realms, all the moments... All the universes are here. Here. Not here in a limited way, not here in a bounded way, not here in a boundaried way, but here. Knowable, meetable, penetratable, but not definable, not reducible, not packageable. May all beings soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Very interesting line. May all beings realize the deathless. Lin conditioned by linear time, we, we might easily assume that the deathless is something we would get to and then, what? I don't know. Something that we would get to and then, ah, uh, and then death wouldn't happen. Good luck with that. Immortel. But it's not really, that's not good. That would be literally, I don't think there's a translation. Le, 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 immortable. Yes, 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 that's good, I think. <laughs> don't give me that it's not a word business. I don't mind about that. Immortable. Yeah, but now it does. <laughs> Immortable. Yeah. Yeah, but that's the same we have to do in we had to do in English. Deathless doesn't make sense. Right? But we 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 give it a sense so that we have a reference point for it. If you want to find words that already exist for for concepts that don't exist, no chance. You have to. Have, uh, 
invent the word so you can give life to something that is hitherto un, un, uh, unknown. Right? That's how all languages developed. Right? But we, the ones that have been around for a while, we say, oh, they're okay, those ones. But the new ones, I'm not sure, c'est pas dans l'Académie Française. <laughs> we might find a better one. For now, immortable. The un undiable would be the, the, the sense of that, the undiable. Yeah. So even that, that concept is something beautiful, I think, about rea that sense of to realize the deathless. But how easily we conceive of it as happening over time. Even the language. Soon. Who wrote that in there? Soon realize the deathless. That's a very bad. I'm sure that's a poor translation. Hmm? You can't do anything soon. <laughs> soon will never come. May we be present, we enter into, so that we, we see our relationship with time. We see the conditioning influence of the relationship with time. We feel our way into an intimacy with, with, in which what we call here, there, before, after, past, present, starts to feel just meetable, includable. And we might find the undying, undiable, immediate, all-inclusive timelessness of just being here. May all beings realize the deathless. Not sooner, and not later, and not now, but in presence always available. Okay, friends. There's no time at all until dinner. But there are about 25 minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.